You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Claire McCaskill was the first woman from Missouri elected as a U.S. senator and continues to serve in that position today. She has a B.A. and a J.D. from the University of Missouri and has worked in the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office before she was elected to her first state legislature position in the Missouri House in 1982. She was elected Jackson County Prosecuting Attorney in 1992 and Missouri State Auditor in 1998. Her new book is Plenty Ladylike. Thank you for joining me, Senator McCaskill. Thank you. It's, it's a thrill for me to be here. This is such an interesting book. And as I was reading this, particularly in the opening parts, I was thinking that your environment, your family going back the way you lived your early life, this was the perfect primordial soup from which would emerge a great politician. Well, it's true. I mean, I was told to say trick-or-treat and vote for JFK when I was seven years old. And I want to hasten to add that my parents were not politically powerful. My parents were, I think, the essence of what's great about the American democracy. They stuffed envelopes. They made calls for candidates. Um, They went to hear candidates speak when they came to town. So this wasn't as if I grew up in a, you know, high-profile political family, but I grew up around people who taught me that public service was honorable. You know, I never heard that politicians were all crooks and thieves and jerks in my household. I I heard, you need to pay attention to this because it's important. And obviously, um, I did. And it, they, both my parents, as you can tell um, in the book, they were amazing in terms of getting me into the place in my head that I could see myself as being the first woman governor of Missouri from a very young age. This was a, a very interesting transformation. And you give us, it in the opening, I think the most transformative moment of your political life when you were walking, you knocked on some 11,000. You remember the exact number. 11,432. 11,432 doors in your first uh, bid for uh, the state Congress. And there was one moment when you were greeted by a man who told you you're too young. Your hair is too long. You're a girl. No way. Are you tough enough for politics? Those politicians in Jeff City would eat you alive. Go find yourself a husband. How did you feel when you were told that? Well, obviously, I remember it. Um, He slammed the door. (laughs) And, you know, walking door to door, um, uh, it was an incredibly illuminating experience because I met so many people and there were many people that were friendly there were many people that were dismissive and then some like this that were downright rude but this one stuck out because he was verbalizing what I encountered sometimes because I'd been an assistant prosecutor in a male-dominated field I knew I was going into a male-dominated field I'd already interned in Jefferson City where I had in fact been harassed sexually harassed as a college student so you know it it, it is one of many times that I have been confronted with ugly, and I internalized it to kind of focus my ambition more directly on the task at hand. I was determined 
when I encountered people like that to show them they were wrong. I mean, it was like a driving force within me that I would overcome these naysayers that said I was too young and all of that. You know, and the hair was always a thing because I had a lot of blonde hair. So it was always, you know, a distraction, but um, one that I pushed through. You know, when we were reading about this, even early on, even in high school, you understood the power of politics. And I love the way you managed to become homecoming queen. This is embarrassing. Um, (laughs) Isn't it? I mean, it's kind of embarrassing. I I have never told this story publicly. Mm. But this book really is about, I, I want it to empower and inspire young women. And I want them to feel comfortable with the ambition. I want them to feel comfortable with being aggressive and assertive. And I want them to embrace strategy. So I decided, you know, I was going to go for it in this book and bear my secrets, including embarrassing ones, like I campaigned for Homecoming Queen. I figured out that the Homecoming Queen was always the girlfriend of the quarterback or the co-captain. And there's just a couple of those folks. But there's a lot of linemen. And there's a lot of, of other positions on the football. And there's second and third string. Um, there's the equipment managers that got a vote. So I began methodically working through all of the linemen and offense and defense and all of the second and third stringers and became friends with all of them. And I tried to set them up with dates and how are they doing. Now, in the process... I became friends with many of them, and we remain friends to this day. But I also learned how to identify a constituency, um, take your message to them, and the next fall, I indeed was elected homecoming queen, um, and I wasn't the girlfriend of the quarterback or the co-captain. Your politicking skills took you into this internship. Uh, You write that self-effacing humor combined with a passionate focus on substantive issues could be effective, whereas either one in isolation, not so much. How did you make this discovery? Well, when I was interning, I interned for a wonderful woman by the name of Sue Shear, who was really a single-issue legislator, and her passion was the Equal Rights Amendment. Everything she did revolved around trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. She was didn't have a lot of humor in terms of the collegiality of the place. And I watched how she was marginalized and not taken seriously. On the other hand, when I got to the legislature, there were some women there that wanted to be one of the boys. They were partiers. They were, you know, right in there, given as good as they get. And I saw how they weren't taken very seriously. So I realized that a mix of the two was probably where I was most comfortable. And frankly, sometimes, I say this in the book, when I was, um, when things were said to me that were inappropriate and frankly illegal, um, I, I most of the time laughed it off or just ignored it. Um, I'm not sure I handled it correctly, but I knew that to be effective at that, at that time in history, it would have been very difficult for me to be confrontational every time someone said something to me that was inappropriate about my gender and, or about my age or about my looks. And um, so I, I tried to do both. I tried to use uh, a sense of humor, but I also, every time somebody said something to me that was outrageous, I internalized that. And I said, I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them that I am not to be marginalized, that I can do much better than they do at this job. I can be more substantive. I can get more done. And so it really, it was really fuel for me 
in terms of my determination to rise up and, and get promoted to a bigger job by my bosses, which, of course, were the voters. This book is really about, in many ways, your education in how to deal with our endemic culture of sexism. You would think that would be gone by in the 21st century. It's still running strong, ain't it? Well, I, I you know, the, one of the most depressing things is that while this book was at the printer, where I tell the stories of the Speaker of the House actually saying to me when I wanted to get my bill out of committee, I asked him, could he help me get my bill out of committee? And he said, did you bring your knee pads? I mean, that actually occurred when I was a freshman legislator in 1983 in Jefferson City, Missouri. So I know it's like unbelievable, (laughs) right? It's horrific. So here we are in 2015. This book is at the publisher. And what breaks out in Jefferson City? A scandal with two legislators caught sexually propositioning uh, interns. And these young women came forward and confronted them. And both of these characters lost their careers over it. So bad news. It was still going on. Good news. These young women now felt like they had the support system and had the courage uh, to step out of the shadows and speak speak truth to power. And I think what they've done is going to have a real deterrent effect on that nonsense in Jefferson City. Well, that's great to hear. And they're lucky, the people who committed these crimes are lucky that you're not the prosecutor. But I think that being a prosecutor played a major influence in the way you handled your political career to follow. There's no question. Um, I was a, a young prosecutor at the time that we really didn't have second chairs. Now, if you're in a prosecutor's office, typically there's always two prosecutors that are handling the case. So I was given a great deal of responsibility from a very young age to handle criminal trials by myself. And um, it was a little bit like, you know, throwing the the young puppy in the water and making sure that (laughs) they don't drown. But um, I learned so much, and I learned about thinking on my feet. I learned about the power of preparation that um, knowledge is power and that the more you know, the stronger you can be. I had a great sense of public service in that job, and it lit me up. It made me look forward to getting out of bed in the morning, that I was doing something that mattered in the community that could impact people's lives. So um, on many different levels, and it gave me a lot of confidence because if you can stand you know, in, in, against a seasoned criminal defense lawyer as a very young lawyer, and you can go toe-to-toe in the courtroom over the horrific details of a serious crime, then, you know, Jefferson City and Washington aren't nearly as intimidating. So I do think that that experience gave me confidence that I might not have had that allowed me to take some of the risks later in my career that I think sometimes women are um, reluctant to embrace. Well, one of the first risks you took was to run for the Missouri General Assembly. You uh, knocked on the aforementioned 11,432 doors, won a seat, and this was with the help of EMILY's List. And I never knew the where that, that, that was an acronym or where that came from. Early money is like yeast. And, um, in fact, I'll be pleased to speak to the EMILY's List group here in San Francisco on Friday. They're gathering for one of their annual events and to raise money. This is a great organization that um, is trying to do something I talk about in the book, and that is mobilize women to be political givers. Um, I think that women have a tendency to look at money as security, Mm -hmm. and they don't really see how giving 
A check, no matter how modest or small, to a candidate helps their security. And what I want women to realize is that power is security. And electing people to positions that matter is the ultimate security. That's how we get equal pay. That's how we get good daycare. That's how we get paid maternity leave, um, is by putting people in power that have the same values that you have. So um, early money is like yeast. Emily's List began helping me back when I was a very young legislator, and they have helped me uh, all the way to the United States Senate. And that was where you had a your dust-up with a man named Richard Webster, an entertaining uh, anecdote in this book. Yeah, I ch- he was a, a, a very powerful senator, really powerful. And um, several times I had the nerve of crossing him. Um, he was really engaged in nepotism. He wanted his son to be governor, and his son was currently the attorney general. So he was busy padding his son's budget and adding personnel and programs to his son's portfolio in a way that was pretty brazen. I mean, it was pretty transparent what he was up to. So I confronted it publicly, and he was outraged that I would have the nerve. So he certainly um, killed, uh, sent a messenger to my office saying that all my bills were dead for the session. He did, in fact, kill all my bills for the session, but I worked around him and got other colleagues to sponsor my amendments. And so I got a lot done that year. He just didn't know I got a lot done that year. Um, And he is the one that at the end of the session, um, he actually was talking to one of my colleagues, and there was an argument going on about in the final throes of legislating one one piece of of, uh, one bill. Um, You can say anything you want on the Senate floor, and it's not actionable. And he was standing just off the Senate floor talking to my colleague. He stepped just back on the Senate floor and then said to my colleague, you know, you tell that whore that I will, that everybody in this building can't stand her or whatever, whatever. And so my colleague came over and told me what he'd said. And the House was still in session. So I took to the floor on a point of personal privilege and just kind of laid it all out and said, this is absolutely wrong. And um, it was, it was a, a, a... a moment in my career I won't forget because it felt really good to just say, hey, I'm not afraid of you. You know, do what you'd like, come with whatever you've got, but I'm not afraid of you. This book is really, I think, a stunning read to see how hard as nails you have to be to, to stand up to the endemic sexism in our, not just in government, but just in our culture in general. I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, I think you, and somebody asked me, well, is there, is there sexism in the Senate? And now, you know, obviously I'm much older when I came to the Senate, but I honestly believe I have always been treated with respect and um, in a way that is, uh, I feel completely unequal to my male colleagues in the Senate. And I think it's because they figured out that the women who get there they're pretty tough cookies. I mean, if you, <laughs> you get, don't want to mess with if them. If you get to the United States Senate as a woman, then, you know, you're not easily pushed around. Mm. And so, um, in fact, we, you know, kind of joke around the women. There's 20 of us. We like to gather as a group on the floor just to talk because it drives the men get all worried, you know, because if we're all together on something, we are a formidable force. Um, and And I do think that uh, we're at 20 now. I hopefully will get to more than that. I'd like to see us at about 60 because I think government will work better if we get more women there. I think there'll be less of the um, scoring points at somebody else's expense. Mm-hmm. It seems to be the common way of, of handling issues in Washington these days. 
Um, we don't always agree, the women. I mean, some of the women I disagree with very much on many things. But we don't throw each other under the bus, and we don't try to uh, make each other look bad. And um, I think that if we could kind of spread that sense to the rest of the uh, of the senators, I think we'd, we'd be more productive. After your stint in the General Assembly, you went back to become Jackson County prosecutor. And uh, during that, you learned some lessons about running for office, particularly the vulnerabilities of your spouse. Yeah. Um, if you're a woman and your husband is not a librarian, um, <laughs> then, you know, you know, buckle up because... <laughs> Um, it is your spouse's fair game. And, I, I, you know, it was really interesting to me. Um, we've had a couple of men run for president who have uh, w- wives that have complicated finances and business interests, both John Kerry and John McCain. And I recall very little sorting through all of their complex business interests and all of the money they had or didn't have and where it was and how it was used. But if you're a woman and your husband has complex business interests, then it is all of a sudden fair game. It was so ironic in 2006, I was running, um, my my husband that I'm married to now has complex business interests. And of course, if if he were not married to me, he would be a poster child for the Republican Party because he's started with nothing and has created thousands of jobs and, and great wealth. But because he's married to me, he's a tax cheating SOB. So they tried to figure out a way to paint him as somebody who was, you know, evading his responsibilities or not doing a good job in his businesses. And um, at the same time, my opponent's wife was a lawyer that did nothing but advise people on how to avoid taxes. But there was no coverage of what she did for a living, (laughs) but there was a lot of coverage about what my husband did. And it is one of those unfair realities of women who run that um, you need to be prepared and your spouse needs to be prepared for what's to come if if you put your hat in the public ring. You were an auditor in Missouri, and and this, I think, played a big influence on your work in the Senate now. You're, You're... an expert at trying to excavate what is going on with all the money we poured into that war. Where did it go? Well, I I became an auditor, and I'd never. I was very worried. In fact, I my campaign was worried I was going to be seen at the bookstore by, buying one of those yellow and black auditing for dummies <laughs> book because I had no, I'd never done, audited anything. I'm not a CPA. I'm just a lawyer. But I was so lucky because I was um, elected to an office with an amazing public servants who were great government auditors. And I learned from them, and I learned to prioritize issues and lead this group of talented people. And we were able to ferret out all kinds of nonsense in terms of the way the government was behaving. So all those skills I really appreciate now as a senator. I can do oversight, and I did, in fact— Harry Truman's my hero for many reasons. I sit in his seat. He made his reputation in the Truman Committee, ferreting out war profiteering in World War II. So when I came to Washington, I wanted to figure out all that money we wasted in Iraq. And we were able to get to the bottom of just massive contracting fraud and abuse on a scale unimaginable to Harry Truman. 
and we then started the War Contracting Commission. There were a number of recommendations. We have now embedded those recommendations in the law. And while we still have mistakes going on, we have made big improvements in, in war co- wartime contracting. You ran for governor of Missouri. This is a long-held dream of yours and lost. What did you learn from that experience that you're using right now today in the Senate? Well, I learned that vulnerability can be an asset. Um, I was so busy trying to convince everyone that I was the strongest candidate in terms of knowledge and qualifications. One of the journalists after the race said that I reminded her of an obnoxious Jeopardy contestant, you know, ringing my bell. You know, I know the answer. I know the answer. And I was so busy doing that that I forgot to explain um, my childhood and the values I'd grown up with in rural Missouri and that my hopes and dreams for my kids were the same as every other Missourian and that I had fears about the future just like they did. So um, when a focus group, one of the women in the focus group said I reminded her of Cruella DeVille, I realized I needed to lighten up and be more vulnerable. And it's the same thing when you're a senator and working with your colleagues. If you are always on overdrive and you are always pushing from a substantive position and you can't let off the gas long enough to listen to others and to share with them what you're worried about and to tell them some of the problems you're having, then um, it doesn't work as well. Um, People you have to be relatable, whether it's to voters or whether it's to your colleagues. And that's what that loss taught me. Even though I laid on the couch and ate way too many chocolate chip cookies for about two months after I lost, I eventually got up off the couch and and then was successful in the Senate race just two years later. As a senator, you provide an invaluable perspective on women's issues and even more valuable now that Planned Parenthood is under assault. What do you think these new videos and this audio that we've heard, how do you think that that came about? And could you talk about how, what you plan to do? Well, I certainly, um, first of all, let me state the obvious. The videos are very disturbing. Secondly, they were obtained by fraud. Someone fraudulently embedded themselves within the Planned Parenthood organization for years in order to try to get them, quote unquote, get them. And um, they had an agenda and they were focused on that agenda. Now, having said that, let's put that to one side and look at the issue of funding Planned Parenthood. We all want to prevent abortions. The best way to prevent abortions is to provide birth control easily accessible and affordable birth control. That's all the federal money does for Planned Parenthood. It doesn't go towards abortions. The law does not allow it to. There is a wall there. There are audits. There are inspections. None of the federal money is used for anything other than family planning and health services for women. So I'm trying to figure out how we reduce abortions by cutting off the money for birth control. Now, in Missouri, we would say that dog don't hunt. That is um, dumb. We should be funding organizations that are making sure women are planning their pregnancies because an unplanned pregnancy is more likely to result in an abortion. It's just that simple. And I um, believe that there are enough of us in the Senate that we will block any attempt to cut off funding to Planned Parenthood because millions of women in this country depend on it. In your 2000 
12 run, you found yourself paired against a man who didn't believe in contraception. In fact, three of people who did not believe in contraception would like to see that outlawed. And I thought that it was fascinating to read how you brought back your uh, high school uh, politicking skills <laughs> to use once again. I did. I did. I um, realized, even though all three of my opponents were very extreme and probably would have voted very similarly in the United States Senate, one of them had a record of saying what he believed, which were all dictated by his religious faith, unfiltered, without thinking about how it sounded to maybe people who didn't hold his same views. So I knew we had a cache of things he had said that would be disqualifying for him with the moderate voters in Missouri. So that's who I wanted to run against, Todd Aiken. So at the end of the campaign, the primary campaign, I, I polled the Republican voters and figured out what it was about Todd Aiken they liked the most. And then I cut it. He didn't have very much money. But I cut an ad and said, this is Claire McCaskill. I approve this message. I paid for the ad, almost $2 million worth of advertising, more than he had spent in his entire campaign. And the ad said, Todd Aiken is too conservative for Missouri, which is exactly what I believed. And then I listed the things that the Republican primary voters really liked about him. And then I said, you know, he's a true conservative, but he's too conservative. Well, it worked. The Republican primary voters flocked to him because, first of all, if I was telling them that he was too conservative, that meant he was just right. And um, he won the primary. And then, um, even though we had a lot to work with already, he had said that college loans were the cancer of socialism. He wanted to do away with Medicare, uh, do away with Social Security. He really was extreme. He then exceeded our expectations um, a few weeks after he won the primary by making the now famous comments about legitimate rape. Um, And this plays into... Uh, some of your current work in that you are now you were tasked with looking at uh, the rape culture in the American military and now you're looking at at it on college campuses how did does the military experience inform your college work well what we know is that and as the prosecutor um, I handle a I probably handled more sexual assault jury trials than any senator in the history of our country. And I have seen firsthand what makes a successful case and what makes an unsuccessful case. And the moment of reporting is key. What that victim encounters when they are willing to tell someone what happened. If they encounter somebody who doesn't know how to interview them, who is questioning their credibility, who doesn't understand what the rules are or the laws are, it is less likely that the perpetrator will be held accountable. So what we did in the military is making sure that that victim, at the moment they report, gets their own individual lawyer to help them navigate the military justice system or the civilian justice system, because they could be uh, it, the, their case could end up either place. So what we're doing in the college legislation is we're trying to make sure that there's a place where a student can do, go with a confidential advisor. So as they're making the decision whether they want to go public, they get good information. What, should they turn it into the police? Should they turn it into the school? And if they do give it to the school, what will happen? And if they go to the police, what will happen? A victim at that moment of trauma who doesn't get reliable, good information 
is many times set out on a very painful journey and sometimes doesn't even realize all the information she needed until at the very end of that journey when things have been um, where she's been re-victimized. So we're going to really try to embed in the law the requirement that the campuses provide a confidential advisor for the victim at the moment that it is reported anywhere. I think that your experience, long experience, and long history of experiencing sexism at every level, at every part of your journey to this moment here has really helped inform um, your legislation, your ability to, to work this. You talk about the power of the American press, mostly negative, in the way that uh, women are even discussed even now here in the 21st century. Well, we, we laugh because, um, you know, I think we were all talking when they an article mentioned that Janet Yellen was wearing the same suit at something that she'd worn two days uh, you know, like two weeks earlier. And we're like, we were all just like throwing our hands at the women senators going, oh, my Lord. I mean, really? Um, I mean, we know senators that wear the same suit every day for like a month. You know, it's like, <laughs> how in the world does that get in print? Uh, so, um, and, you know, the adjectives that are sometimes used, I have been called um, calculating and manipulative as this book came out and the strategy I employed against Todd Aiken was revealed. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I were a man um, that that maybe some of those pejorative adjectives would be used, maybe They'd brilliant. smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> quick, smart, and quick. Yeah, exactly. But it, it is part of it. Um, I, I think we have the best, I, I, as I look back on my career, the thing that I hope people take from it is that I have, you know, stood in the trenches and fought through it. And you can. And I want young women, especially young women that maybe aren't even interested in politics to read this book. I want dads to buy this book for their daughters because, you know, the, the title comes because when I was, when I was very young. My teacher told me, the teacher I loved, said, you've got to quit talking in class so much the boys aren't going to like you, and it's not ladylike. And then after my first debate with Todd Aiken, he told the press that I wasn't very ladylike. So bookended wow. in my life, <laughs> I have been told I wasn't ladylike because I'm strong and aggressive. And we've got to redefine what ladylike is. It has to be speaking out and taking charge and changing the world. And I think the more my dad you know, was there for me when boys didn't like me and I wasn't getting dates in both high school and college. And he said, it's fine. Smart men will figure it out eventually. Just chill. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And he was right. But his steady voice at that moment when I was questioning, do I need to dumb down so guys will like me, was huge in my life. And I hope that that experience in this book will maybe motivate um, young women in business to how to strategize around obstacles and how to embrace their ambition and how to learn to be aggressive and strategic when you need to be and um, that, you know, you never should dumb down for anybody. That's what I think is so powerful about this book is that it reaches beyond politics and uh, speaks to the the division in our culture that we still have. And I really like this idea of seeing 60 women in the Senate. I think that that's, it's only just because that's a, that close to the proportion of uh, men to women in the country. Well, we have 53% of the voters. Mm -hmm. So I think 60 
um, would be what we'd need to really, I think, make some significant changes. So um, now, you know, I, I get that I'm generalizing and I get that it's not fair to some men who are great on equal pay and all the things that I think we need to be pressing in this country for economic justice, um, particularly as it relates to working women and mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the other thing in the book. I deal with my guilt about being a mom, a single mom with three young children in a high-profile, stressful career that is very demanding and, and how I dealt with that. And um, so I, I, I get that many men can be sensitive and informed about it. Um, but after my career, I'm going to continue to advocate all I can to mentor other women to see if we can't get more women in the pipeline to hold higher offices in this country. Are you going to run for Senate again? Do you know? I probably will. Um, it's my plan to run in 18. I had my 62nd birthday this year. So um, I'm a young chick in the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> in, in my view, too, believe me. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, that's one thing. Um, you know, when you come to the Senate, um, if you're in your 60s, you're not, you, you're not feeling particularly old because there's many, many senators who are in their 70s and 80s that are uh, obviously very uh, important to the work of the Senate and are contributing every day. In fact, let me just, you know, I mean, Diane Feinstein's amazing. I mean, this is a, she is just, she works incredibly hard. She's so informed on the issues. She is such a substantive uh, senator. I am, uh, uh, she really, frankly, is one of my most important role models. Uh, very collegial and um, respectful of other people, but um, courageous when it counts. She's amazing. I've been speaking with Claire McCaskill. She's the senator from Missouri. Her new book is Plenty Ladylike. Thank you for joining me, Senator McCaskill. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.